This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, it's the Religion and Ethics Report. Andrew West with a special Easter week edition of the program coming to you from a place where the land meets the sea. And I'm here because soon you'll hear about an important new book. It argues the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a profoundly religious call from First Nations peoples. And two contributors will explain why they've embraced the Uluru Statement. Let's start, though, with race and religion in the United States, where this concept of Christian nationalism has taken hold, especially among white evangelicals. The biggest evangelical church, the Southern Baptist Convention, is now facing its own reckoning over racial issues. Morgan Lee is international editor of the influential evangelical magazine Christianity Today. She's reported extensively on Christian nationalism, and I met her during her recent visit to Australia. Obviously, the most flagrant example for people of Christian nationalism was the insurrection on January 6th, which saw a lot of Christian imagery among the folks that made their way inside the Capitol building and that were part of the Stop the Steal marches and so forth. And this idea of God and country being very closely linked. This is something that, in my mind, to the extent that the American Christians have been leaders in it, which I'm not sure they have, I think this kind of phenomena can take place in multiple places around the world, whether it's someplace like Hungary. Hungary has really adopted really Christian, but kind of like historical Christian identity. And, um, and I think I should say, you put that in air quotes, inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It's not necessarily like a, we want everyone to believe in Jesus mentality. Mm. It's about we want to defend Christendom type mm. of situation to the fact that Brazil this year had its own kind of version um, on January 8th, where again, a number of people showed up at different buildings in their capital. And those folks also had religious terms and signs and expressions that were being used to kind of like talk about that day. Is white evangelicalism simply a matter of race? I think that many people see it as a particular cultural component in there, especially to the extent that which you might see it as a reactionary movement. If it's something that is spurring up in regards to a perceived loss of identity or culture, that it somehow goes beyond that. I will say that white evangelicals generally hold particular political points that are not necessarily unique to them. There's plenty of other conservatives who may not be that way, whether they end up being Catholic, so white Catholics might hold similar positions, or you might have groups like Latino evangelicals who might hold similar positions. But definitely, as kind of a cultural shorthand, when people are thinking of white evangelicals, often they're immediately connotation is politics. Given that in the United States, and I, I'm pretty sure that it replicates what's happening in Australia, often the people of deepest faith are not white. Mm -hmm. They're of immigrant communities. What is white evangelicalism missing out on? I will say, I think, and I don't want to generalize to everyone that's not a white evangelical, but in many of these immigrant congregations, there's a huge passion. There's this sense mm -hmm. of like, real enthusiasm that doesn't feel forced about who Jesus is, about appreciation for having had the opportunity to encounter Jesus, especially the churches that may um, be largely composed of people who converted to Christianity once they arrived to the U.S. or around before that. 
there's this sense of like, wow, I'm so grateful that I'm in this position and I'm not taking it for granted or I'm not taking for the granted the ability to practice my faith as I would like to. I do think too, with regards to Latin American immigrants as well, mm. we see a lot of these Latin American immigrants who grew up in a Catholic environment and later on became evangelical. And maybe amongst folks like me at CT, we might see like, oh, there's a lot of commonalities between Catholicism and Protestantism. But for people who grew up in one type of environment, they see quite a different way that their faith is expressed and an ability to relate to God, to see that, feel the eminence of God, that God responds to a lot of their like material needs in a way that feels just extremely personal and again, elicits a certain level of like enthusiasm that I'm not sure that necessarily the white evangelical church, we, I think we kind of take it for granted. What does it mean today to be a young woman of a mixed race background living in what you describe as a white evangelical culture? That's a really interesting question, Andrew, and I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of time to reflect on that, not only because of the years that I've spent working at Christianity Today, but also having moved to Hawaii recently, where that question looks very different than when I lived in Chicago. I would say that in many ways, like many identities, it's been complicated. There's a lot of different ways in which Christianity has interacted with my past. So for instance, on my mom's side, who is Caucasian, my grandparents were actually missionaries in Zimbabwe for about five years. The Hawaiian side of my identity, my dad actually became a Christian in university. However, Christianity entered Hawaii through missionaries who now have a pretty complicated legacy with how we perceive them and understand the impact and the connection that they had with the eventual overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii. And then I also have family who is Chinese as well. The Chinese moved to Hawaii in the late 1880s, which is about the time that they entered my family. So it's interesting because there's just so many complicated and challenging narratives. Obviously, even though you can see what this mission saying, there was a strong sense of evangelism that took the gospel to all these different places. At the same time, there were significant blind spots and ways in which the church did hurt people who were of various backgrounds or in some instances failed to stand up for them in the midst of that. And then there's of course been significant challenges that the evangelical church has had in the U.S. not only with including people who are not white but also taking them seriously, elevating them into places of leadership. There's been times where evangelical can become just shorthand for white conservative. How is the white evangelical church in America, and I'm thinking particularly here of the Southern Baptist Convention, mm -hmm. the largest evangelical group in the United States, how has it been wrestling with its past when it comes to race? Since the Southern Baptist denomination was formed, one would argue it has had the opportunity to wrestle with it for that entire time. For people who aren't familiar with this denomination, the Baptist split around the time of the Civil War in the States over the issue of slavery. And specifically, the Southern Baptists were there to sanction slavery, where, there's, where the Northern Baptists were like, we don't want any part of that, and they kind of wiped their hands about that. And so, as you can imagine, just in the same way that sanctioning slavery haunts the United States, these attitudes and perspectives about slavery continues to haunt the Southern Baptist Convention even though, right, I mean, there's no one that would condone slavery in any type of way since then. But it's an organization that has, has really been slow to widely address the fact that 
there are African-American Christians and leaders who are part of the denomination, whose churches are a part of the denomination. And yet it's been very rare that you see African-American leadership either represented at the, as the president of the convention or as seminary leaders or holding other different type of like denominational positions. Yeah. I think that officially in 1995 and then again in 2021, the Southern Baptist Convention apologized for its failures on race. It did that in an official sense, but how seriously have communities of color taken that approach? There's been various answers to that. There are plenty of denominations who feel quite content and comfortable in a denomination that supports very similar things to them. I currently attend a congregation that is run by a Filipino-American. He really loves the fact that the Southern Baptists support missions work around the world, and that's what keeps him in the Southern Baptist thing. He's not constantly putting a bumper sticker on his car that's like, I'm proud to be part of the SBC, but he feels alignment with the fact that he sees them having this really big passion to share Christianity with everyone around the world. And so some of the things that they may say around race or the blunders, he's cognizant of them, but he's not necessarily on the front lines of some of these like national battles that are there. And I do think that there's a number of Christians from different backgrounds who feel like they can connect sufficiently with other parts of the Southern Baptist denomination. One of the things that's unique about it is that there's not a lot of theological types of um, tenets that you have to uphold. If you're part of the Southern Baptist denomination, it generally allows for more creativity. Well, actually, Morgan, I've read a critique where it says that sometimes it's more entertainment than catechesis, that is theology. <laughs> sure, and that's going to vary by church, right? But definitely for denominations that can tend to be like, yes, super big on their level of theology, that's not, I'm not going to say they don't care about theology, but it's, it's a little bit different than other places where it's saying like, here's a line by line, every single thing, it's super enumerated, right? There's far more bandwidth with who gets to call themselves Southern Baptist um, than some other denominations. But for other people, you know, it's felt very fraught to see the Southern Baptist Convention consistently in the news for issues that have to do with race. So a couple years ago, there was one of the issues where someone had put forth something at one of the national conventions to condemn the alt-right. This measure did not pass as immediately as was expected. From what I understand, there was an administrative hurdle about why that did not happen. But regardless of whether it was an administrative hurdle or not, there was the optics of the sense of like, what, why is it hard for this denomination to pass this? And then more recently, there's been a lot of, I, I don't know how much your listeners are clued into the whole discussion, for lack of a better word, that we're having in the U.S. about critical race theory. Yeah. But that was a huge issue at the last type of convention. And there's been pressure on seminary heads to condemn critical race theory. And critical race theory, this kind of agitation that people have felt about that has come really soon after the whole George Floyd movement, Black Lives Matter movement, how you respond to the George Floyd incident. And so there's been black evangelicals who have felt kind of abandoned. Morgan Lee from Christianity Today, and this is a special Easter week edition of the Religion and Ethics Report on air and at the ABC Listen app. A landmark new book is called Statements from the Soul and it makes a powerful case that the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which underpins the referendum that we'll have later this year, is a deeply spiritual document. One of the contributors is well known to you, ABC journalist and writer Stan Grant. 
and I met Stan in a place that's significant for him. Stan, we're here at Coogee Beach, a slight breeze, the waves, we can hear them lapping against the shore. Uh, often, Stan, of course, you can hear the parties going on, but you come to Coogee Beach pretty much every morning. Why? What does it do for you? Whether it's Coogee Beach, whether it's back home in my own country, wherever I can get close to God is where I start my day. To be in God's creation is why I get up early. To see that sunrise, to feel the breeze, to look at the water, to walk under the trees, it connects me to God. Because as a Wiradjuri, Gamilaroi Darawal man, my connection to God is through my connection to who I am and where I am. So it's really important for me to make that, that connection. And Andrew, I see other people out at the same time. And these may not be people who speak in the terms that I speak, but I recognize in them a very deep yearning, a yearning for the things that we can't know, the things we can't see, things we can't measure under a microscope or in our bank accounts, the things of the soul, those things of God. Often I'll listen to spiritual texts or readings of the Bible or things that connect me to that part of me that needs to walk with God. I'll tell you what also speaks of connection and yearning. It's the Uluru Statement from the Heart. You are a contributor to a new book, Statements from the Soul, the moral case for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. First of all, why is the Uluru Statement, in your view, very much about God? Psalm 43.1, Andrew, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. That's it. Vindicate me, O God, plead my cause against an ungodly nation. That's the statement from the soul. That's our standing as God's people in the land God gave us to speak back to the sins against God in this land with all the righteousness, with all the anger, but also the love and the forgiveness that this calls from us to our nation, to stand in all of that. That's the moral, spiritual power of the statement from the heart. It's a righteous anger. It's not a blind anger, though. But let's not forget, Andrew, that God is an angry God. Jesus says, too, I don't come to bring peace. I come to bring a sword. This is not someone who shies away from what is right. And I was raised with that. Our love, our forgiveness comes from the God in us. But the God in us speaks incredibly powerfully to injustice. God chooses, and we are on the side of God in our struggle against injustice. A righteous anger, not a resentful, vengeful anger, because that would be to fail God, but most definitely to stand there in God's righteous anger at what has happened to us. In the midst of the pain, Stan, you do write about this concept of never forgetting the tragedy, but 
remembering it in a particular way. What are you talking about there? I'm inspired by Miroslav Vorf, the great theologian, who of course was once asked, he's Croatian, was once asked, can he embrace a Chetnik, Serbian nationalist fighter? He said, no, but I must. And I have to confront that. How do I embrace those who have done the worst to us? And that is not in forgetting, but in remembering rightly to hold on to justice, the righteousness and indeed the anger, but be guided by God in love and forgiveness. Never allow those things to poison the soul, to actually see yourself in the other. We share this place, Andrew. We live in the place together with all that history between us. I need to find a way to live with the suffering of my people in a way where they are never forgotten. They're never buried twice. But they are remembered rightly, without vengeance and resentment, but with justice and righteousness. How does the Uluru Statement weave the relationship with this country, with this red earth, Mm. into a relationship with God? Sovereignty is a spiritual notion. (laughs) That's what it says. It says that explicitly. You know, sovereignty, we hear this word thrown around a lot. And I often scratch my head, and I often scratch my head when I find myself using it or find hear other Aboriginal people using it because it's not our word. In the modern context, it's a Western, Westphalian word, the idea of national sovereignty, law, these things that were used against us. But when we talk about a spiritual notion, that's God. You know, I was back home recently on my own country for a gathering at the old Warren Gesda mission when my great-grandmother was born under a tree. My great-great-grandparents rounded up and taken there. A place that shook with God. And I stood in that country and I found not a slither of light between God, me and my place. Whatever word you want to use, that is our being. If you want to use sovereignty, if you want to use law, whatever, they're the words of politics. They're white words. But that's our place. That's our being. And that's what comes from the statement from the soul. The statement from the soul, the Uluru statement, speaks about the torment of powerlessness. Mm. I think everyone can understand that. But I want to understand the power the moral power that also comes, that is also imbued in the first Australians by their relationship with the land. Relationship with the land first is a relationship with God. The land is God's gift to us. Biami is a word, a Viradjuri word that we use for God. It is the creator God. That relationship between our creator and the place it was gifted to us, is our moral authority, which can never be taken from us, never be taken from us. And we hold that for the rest of Australia. We hold that. When I was raised, the church, the Aboriginal church that I was raised in was a place that shook with the power of God, Andrew. It shook with it. The words of Isaiah 59.9, justice is far from us. We walk in darkness. That's the challenge to this country. It's an unjust country. It walks in darkness. 
and we are people of light because of our relationship to God and this place that God gifted to us. In the book, though, you do write about the redemptive opportunity that does exist for Australia, and it comes through the relationship with the first Australians. Most definitely, because I will say this, and this may land hard in some people's ears. I don't believe you can come to God in this country any other way but through the people of God in this country. We are on the land that God gave us and the redemption for this country. And it does need redemption. In fact, it needs atonement. It needs to atone for those sins which are not just sins against man. They are sins against God. And they're of a different order of magnitude. And the way to atonement is through truth, is through love, is through a reconciliation and a forgiveness earned, earned, not just assumed, but earned through coming to a rightful relationship with us as the people of this land. That's a hard thing. It's a hard road. It's a hard reckoning. But our people have been leading Australia on this journey for 200 years. Stan, it's good to have you back on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Another contributor to Statements from the Soul is Indian and Hindu community leader Prakruthi Mysore Gururaj. Soon after she settled in Brisbane, she met two inspirational Indigenous elders, Auntie Kathy and Auntie Peggy. Well, they not only became good friends, but in their own way, sisters with a lot to share. Andrew, with my experience of being welcomed into Gunguri Women's Circle by the keepers of Gunguri people, Auntie Peggy and Auntie Kathy, based on the spiritual connection, I was welcomed. I'm not a descent of Aboriginal people. That pretty much says me coming from the southern part of India and having been able to integrate with the local indigenous people, there was some sort of purpose that I had. And when I got this Uluru statement from the heart being so profoundly upheld and being supported to have a voice in the constitution, I felt now me being integrated with the Gunguri people, women's circle, I should also support the cause. Tell me about how you became involved with the Gunguri community and your connection with Auntie Kathy and Auntie Peggy. I have been a part of community engagements in all the places wherever I lived. So when I came to Australia in 2011, and in Brisbane especially, I got connected to the local multicultural community, be, you know, giving some programs. And most of the events, I would meet Auntie Peggy because she used to do the Welcome to the Country speeches. And because I sing in multiple languages, currently I sing in 12 languages, I approached Auntie Peggy and I said, I would like to sing in your Inagunguri language. Auntie said, no, we are very protective of our language. We normally don't encourage people to just make their own songs and sing because we have a long ancestral folklore that learns and we don't want people to disrespect the language. I felt that was fair enough. But later, over the period of time in 2019, Auntie Peggy and Auntie Kathy had felt a spiritual connection with me. So Auntie Peggy, you know, met with me and she said, we have something to share. 
you know, how you had said you want to sing in a language, but we have felt the, myself and my sister have felt the, you know, spiritual connection with you because we feel you resemble one of our family members. We like to take you into a Gunguri women's circle. That was wonderful for me to hear because we believe in Hinduism about dharma, karma. So my home, me being born in India, it's my Janma Bhumi. And me coming to Australia or any other you know countries I've lived is Karma Bhumi, where I had to do my deeds. And that was a great connection between Janma Bhumi and Karma Bhumi. And I absolutely was thrilled. And then we had a proper ceremonial process to take me into Gunguri Women's Circle. And what was that ceremony like? It is so much similar to our ancient ceremonies that we form in India, especially mine. I'm from southern part of India and our people are called Dravidians. We are also the Aboriginal Indians. So we have ochre, like a white ash that we smear on in our ceremonial and prayers. And similar to that, in the Australian Aboriginal culture, they do the painting on the body and then they go to a particular spiritual place to do it. But because we have come to modern days, I did the painting, but on the clothes. So it was a three months preparation and then learning the basics of the language and then learning the dance. And then on the ceremony day, they had to perform a dance along with them and ochre was smeared and with their traditional way, I was welcomed. When you think about your own background, your own religious tradition, what did you see it having in common with many forms of First Nation spirituality? Oh, that's the beautiful question. Hinduism basically is called Sanatan Dharma because it's a faith. It's one of the oldest living culture and civilization in the world. The Sanatan Dharma, what is Hinduism we call, is a term referred to eternal truth of living. Basically, it's of two words, Sana and Tana, which means without any beginning and without any ends. It is ongoing forever. And then Dharma is holding together. It's a natural law or a moral code. So the concept of spiritual freedom is an integral part. It's nothing to do with the religion. Basically, it's like, you know, the flow of life, the flow and order of the universe. And rather than it is set as a timeless value that helps us fulfill our potential, it's more of a spiritual experience. And if you see, it's a similar thing what our Aboriginal Australians also believe. It's a dream time. So Aboriginal people understood the dream time as a beginning that never ended. They held the belief that the dream time is a period on a continuum of past, present and future. And that's exactly what we also believe in uh, Hinduism, like karma, which is a sum total of person's action through all his life, past and present. And that's what we say, only the body dies, not the soul. We will be reborn because based on what we do. So that's a kind of spiritual belief that both indigenous or ancient ancient India as well as Australia believed in. And Prakruthi, there's also, I think, a deep belief and a deep respect for the wisdom of the elders, the wisdom of the ancestors. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, if you see, not only our cultural practices in the belief, like we believe in nature, and we too in India have, you know, folklore where it passed from generations to generation. And similarly, the same thing we have here in Australian Aboriginals, and that is respecting our elders and ancestors, what they had created. They knew exactly how the world operates, the cosmos, the universe. The same thing is important and if you see they they prayed nature and animals and like in aboriginal belief each 
which group of tribe they have their traditional totem. Like for instance, Gunguri, Auntie Peggy's totem is Nurin, that is Emu. So they had such a wonderful balance to ecosystem, like each totem that they had, they would not you know, hunt for that. They will make sure that they're protected. So did each of their tribe, they protected their totem animals. That maintained the eco-balance. That's Brisbane-based Hindu leader Prakruthi Mysore Gururaj. And the book we've been discussing is Statements from the Soul, the moral case for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And that's the show for today. Thanks to Hong Jang and Simon Branthwaite. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.